This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Matt Costelli, a former CIA officer who is now running for Congress in upstate New York. What's it like to run for Congress, especially against a high-profile congresswoman, and during COVID? We'll find out, and I'll also talk about whether a real America exists. And now, The Nexus. Matt Costelli is a candidate for the Democratic nomination in New York State's 21st Congressional District. He is a former CIA officer serving over 14 years in analytic, operational, and management assignments, primarily covering counterterrorism. Costelli also served from 2016 to 2018 as Director for Counterterrorism at the National Security Council, and his last assignment was as a senior CIA representative to InQtel. Costelli is a Council on Foreign Relations term member and Truman National Security Project Fellow. He's received an executive MBA from Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management, holds an MA in Security Studies from Georgetown University, and is a graduate of Siena College. Matt Costelli, welcome to the Nexus. Thank you for having me, Art. I wanted to start right off by saying you are running in the 21st district in New York against a very high profile candidate, Elise Stefanik, who is chair of the House Republican Caucus and the third ranking member of the House GOP Caucus. Won't this be a daunting challenge? It's not for me. I think in terms of running in this district in particular, while she is a high profile Republican, on a local level, what I hear from folks throughout this entire district and across the board, Democrats, independents, and Republicans, is a desire for a representative that represents their interests. And while Elise Stefanik has spent a considerable amount of time promoting her own personal interests and her party's interests on uh, cable news or in Washington, D.C., she's done it at the expense of the North Country and the 21st District back here at home. And so I think that the, the situation and circumstances here are quite ripe for uh, an upset and a desire to, to flip this seat uh, to bring country before party. And that's what our race is all about. Uh, I'm someone who has, as you know, served our country, uh, both at the agency and served the community and, and some of the work that I've done in the private sector, and a desire to sort of put the needs of this district and our community ahead of certainly partisan interests and certainly my own personal uh, ambitions or interests, because what we have is the exact opposite in Elise Stefanik, and we want to bring true public service back back to Washington. Can you drill down a bit more on the country before party idea? I mean, I would think a lot of Republicans would say that that's absurd, that that she she is patriotic as well. How do you, what evidence do you have about her um, putting party before country? Well, even in just this last year, we have a couple of really strong examples of that. Uh, the most compelling one is January 6th. Uh, and that is one of the, the key reasons for me and my entry into this race to challenge her is her activity and behavior uh, that particular day in the run up to it, promoting the big lie about the 2020 election, her vote to decertify the election, her vote against a, a bipartisan independent January 6th commission 
her vote to hold against holding those responsible for January 6th accountable, uh, like Steve Bannon. Uh, so consistently with the, that particular event, which is the, the, the most compelling sort of assault against our democracy since the Civil War, she put her own personal ambition and her party's interests ahead of our country's interests. And I take my oath to the Constitution that I took when I joined the CIA many years ago very, very seriously, as many of our uh, public servants do, especially those who have served in the United States military. We swear an oath and an allegiance to the Constitution to support and defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And so I believe very strongly that she's violated her oath to the Constitution. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm running against her is to uphold the oath that I took many, many years ago. But that's just one example in a long litany of examples in which Elise Stefanik has voted against the interests of, of, of her district. And so whether that's voting against the American Rescue Plan, an effort to help combat, end the pandemic and help our district recover from it, she voted against that. She voted against, most recently, a bipartisan infrastructure bill, stuff that was supported by other Republicans here in the state of New York in her congressional delegation. She put her own personal ambition on the line there because that's those are issues and opportunities for this local economy that we desperately need that were contained in that bipartisan infrastructure package. So on a consistent basis, what we've seen out of Elise Stefanik is her putting her own personal ambition and her party's interests ahead of the needs of this district. And so uh, I think what we need is a return to public service, someone who is willing and able to put the country's needs ahead of their own certainly their personal needs and their, their party's needs, if that's what's required, because that's what representation is, uh, particularly on a congressional level. We want to be in a position where we expect our public representatives to represent the needs and interests of the public, not their own personal needs. So you, we've alluded to it already in your biography, and you've mentioned it a couple of times. Obviously, you were um, an officer at the CIA and is... Have you had, we're going to talk about that a bunch, but have you had other political experience? Have you held office before? No, I have not. Um, so I, I, I almost am loathe to use the term uh, politician or aspiring because I, I sort of frame myself more in the context of a public servant and seeking to return to public service. But I, I do not have steeped experience in the political space other than having spent some time at the White House in two different presidential administrations, very different ones, the Obama administration as well as the Trump. Hmm. Well, let's back up then a bit. So how did you get involved with the CIA? I think that that's always a mystery to a lot of folks. Is it something that they recruit you? Was it that kind of like in a movie, a shadowy thing where someone tapped you on the shoulder or did you apply? I mean, how did they even, what was the genesis of all that? Well, I think I'm going to take it even further back uh, to sort of my upbringing. Yeah. I think one of the strongest inspirations, I grew up uh, born and raised in upstate New York, down the road from a dairy farm. And one of the strongest inspirations for public service was my grandfather. He was a doctor an army veteran. He was a, he served at West Point. He was a man that I loved and admired very much. And he's instilled within our family this strong sense of duty, a duty to care. My aunt and uncle became nurses, my mother a teacher. And so that, that draw and that desire to serve others has always been there. And it came into really, really sharp focus for me 20 years ago when I was a junior at Siena College and 9-11 happened. And like many of my generation, that event became this driving force for what would become my career. 
And so I joined the CIA. Um, I, I went to, as you mentioned, Georgetown and I got a master's in national security studies there. And this was this post 9-11 period where there was so much work to do to protecting our country. Uh, and so I joined, I made the application, went through the hiring process, uh, which is quite onerous. Uh, it requires a number of you know, background checks and uh, polygraphs. And we want to make sure that all folks who are receiving top secret security clearances are, are completely vetted, made it through the gauntlet and, uh, and joined there where I spent nearly 15 years and almost exclusively working on counterterrorism issues. I led some teams hunting down some of the world's most dangerous terrorists. I worked in the same department that found Osama bin Laden. I had the opportunity to serve in Afghanistan and Iraq with really the world's premier intelligence officers that had been assembled with what was the great war of our time, uh, the most compelling challenge of our time. Hmm. So I, you answered that thing. So you applied, you, you reached out to them and uh, I, I, where did the idea come from? I mean, just uh, obviously you're saying that 9-11 and you wanted to do service, but why them? I mean, did you, did, did the spy aspect uh, appeal to you? Why not the FBI or or military service? I'm just curious. Yeah, it's, I think it's sort of threading that needle between the two. You know, FBI was focused on things domestically here and has a tremendous mission and has done fantastic work in uh, protecting our country from terrorist events here at home. Our military has an incredibly important role and has been on the front lines of doing so. But the CIA was also very, uh, the pointy tip of the spear in uh, recruiting, uh, penetrating terrorist networks, the ability to uh, cultivate the kind of intelligence that would be necessary to identify plans, intentions, and capabilities of, at the time, Al-Qaeda and their senior leadership, uh, and then to identify where those where those bad guys were uh, in order to hunt them down and remove them. I know folks are all aware of uh, the example of what eventually happened with Osama bin Laden and uh, CIA's role and involvement in those efforts. And so I think the, the appeal there of uh, really being in not on the not on the front pages, you know that's one of the the, the key areas of. Uh, public service that folks in our intelligence community, particularly at the CIA, uh, take uh, to great um, pride in is that our work is never celebrated as publicly as uh, others might be. And that's because they're true professionals, folks who uh, are interested in the mission for the mission's sake, uh, not for the, the glory that might come along with it. And just to demystify it a bit, if you can if you can say this, I, did did people know you were in the agency those years or was this kind of, a, was it again, like a cinematic thing where you said you were a florist or something? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you tell people? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't as uh, cloak and dagger as uh, the, the, the movies might make it. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily something you want to wear on your sleeve in public, but you know, friends and family understood uh, where I worked at the time. Others might have just understood that I worked for the the government. Uh, and as I advanced within my career and you know took on roles down at the White House, it, I became a, a little bit more of a public persona, and therefore it was a little bit more public at that stage. And let's talk about that. How did you get involved with the Obama administration? Was that another kind of thing where you reached out to them, or did they? recruit you to work in their administration? I was at the time, I was uh, essentially recruited, but I was up in the, the counterterrorism front office within 
CIA's headquarters, the, the Counterterrorism Mission Center, it's called. And I was serving as the chief of staff there. And so I had a, a pretty good purview over uh, a wide variety of counterterrorism efforts going on across the globe from CIA's perspective uh, and was pretty plugged in uh, in support and working with our principals in their uh, participation in National Security Council meetings. And I was uh, tapped as they had an opportunity to, to come on down and serve as the director for counterterrorism. I had a, a pretty uh, potpourri portfolio working on both ISIS in uh, Iraq and Syria, as well as uh, Al-Qaeda and their foreign fighters, Al-Qaeda in Syria. Uh, I also had uh, our partnership with our European allies in the counterterrorism world. And then later I would work on um, a refresh to our national counterterrorism strategy. But the Obama administration, and then at the time, uh, the special assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism, Jen Easterly, uh, interviewed me and brought me up, brought me on down uh, to serve in that capacity. Hmm. And did that just carry over into the Trump administration or was that a separate position you had with them? It was a carryover. We were sort of this badge of honor of being a, called holdovers. We were asked by the incoming Trump team, the incoming Trump administration, if we would stay on. Uh, a number of us were. And so I was asked to do so, and I was able to spend a year there. And that's an important time frame of, tr of transition uh, between two different presidential administrations to be able to articulate what has been done in recent memory on any number of issues as they're trying to assemble their team, get them up to speed, figure out what policies they want to be able to put in place, uh, and to maintain some degree of continuity of effort, particularly when it comes to a whole host of national security issues, especially in the, in the realm of counterterrorism. Hmm. I, I mean, I got to imagine people are wondering what the differences were. I mean, was was it more consistent than you thought in terms of the two administrations or was one just uh, very different than the other? How, how did you feel about the that transition? Well, uh, maybe I'll, I'll couch my, my comments in the context of there's always a degree of continuity because of the support and input that's provided by uh, our departments and agencies across government who are informing policymakers across the board to include those at the White House about what the, the nature of the threat is, what opportunities exist to mitigate and or address it. And so there is always going to be a desire for consistency um, in terms of understanding the threat informing uh, strategies and then the implementation of those. So I, I'd, I'd say across the board, particularly on our counterterrorism work, there was early on a greater degree of continuity, particularly uh, with the efforts to defeat ISIS. Uh, that was basically, we had to, as a nation, we had an election and we had a transition from one presidential administration to the other at uh, one of the high points of our efforts to defeat ISIS, particularly in Iraq and Syria. And so the, the continuation of that was, was great. And there were a number of folks who remained in government in, in key roles, uh, even outside of the White House that, that stayed on in those key roles. And so that was useful. I'd say that there was a little bit of a difference in terms of staffing, uh, as you might imagine. Within three weeks, uh, the, the then National Security Advisor, uh, Mike Flynn, was fired. And so there was a little bit of turmoil early on in trying to shake out the organization of the National Security Council. Um, so that... That was, I think, um, from an organizational perspective, a, a little challenging, but those are kind of the speed bumps that you think you're probably going to have with any kind of new administration coming on board, particularly one that not had not had uh, a, a tremendous amount of experience in that realm. Mm. 
So then why leave the CIA? I mean, what, why not stay there for your entire career? Were there reasons you wanted to, to get out at that point? Well, I'll come back to, to something in terms of, of, of continuation between the uh, Obama and Trump administrations and, and, and that service that I had there and then other work that I had done. I believe very strongly because I, I am running in this race. I'm a Democrat. Uh, but I believe very strongly that my experience in public service, what I've learned from that is that when it comes to protecting our communities, protecting our country, protecting my family and yours, that does require, and this ties back to what we were talking about earlier, putting our country before party, right? My belief in that has never wavered. And so when I returned to CIA after my stint at the White House, I did some work, as you alluded to, with uh, the venture capital world and cutting edge technology with this entity called InQtel and trying to integrate that with uh, the national security mission set, things like artificial intelligence, uh, the ability to sort of exploit big data in support of our national security mission. But when COVID hit, it marked another 9-11-like event for me. As I mentioned, my, my grandpa was an army doctor at West Point, and he raised this family of caregivers. And when we started to see uh, at the onset of the pandemic, all of our frontline healthcare workers without adequate protection, uh, they didn't have the, the kind of gear that was necessary to protect them from the onslaught of this virus. I mobilized my business school classmates at the time, and we found a, a manufacturer. We got face shields out to frontline healthcare workers. We, called, we started this little nonprofit called Every Hero Needs a Shield, and we deployed those out to frontline healthcare workers at safety net hospitals across the country. But when we got to the point uh, that we were essentially having a 9-11 every day in terms of deaths in this country. This is the, the greatest challenge of our time. Eight, nearly 800,000 people have lost their lives to this uh, pandemic, to this virus. And so I decided after nearly 15 years to leave the agency and I transitioned into the world of healthcare. And I joined this veteran founded healthcare organization that's here in New York, that's really focused on connecting health and social care by reducing barriers to care for our veterans, for rural communities, for minorities, with investment in infrastructure for our human and social service providers. It's doing some real systems transformation in the world of healthcare to improve the health and well-being of a whole host of populations that otherwise are disaffected in that way. Hmm. So very organic is what you're saying. I mean, it's not one of those things. I mean, do you regret that you're not at the agency anymore or does it just feel like that was a phase of your life and now you're on to the next thing? I don't think there's any shortages of missions that exist in this world. And I am tremendously grateful for the time that I was able to spend at the CIA uh, for the work that we were able to do during what, again, what I believe was the you know great war of our time, a time of tremendous consequence, the ability and opportunity to protect this nation from having another 9-11 and the opportunity to work with some of the most elite intelligence officers our nation has ever assembled against those great challenges. But we have other challenges uh, like the pandemic and COVID, which we haven't yet defeated. And there's a tremendous opportunity for us to be able to do so. Or now in our community here in the North Country in the 21st District of New York, uh, economic insecurity and the challenges that face a community that has not had the kind of investment that is necessary to propel it into the 21st century. And so that there are tremendous opportunities across the board, uh, and I'm excited to tackle those going forward. And let's talk about the race a bit more and just the dynamics of it for our listeners who are 
spread across the country and the world. I just want to know what is the geographic region you are campaigning in? <laughs> so it's referred to as the North Country. We uh, this is a, a period, a place of, above north of Albany. Uh, you cut a little bit west, and you go all the way up uh, north to the Canadian border, and it borders with Vermont. It's the second largest, I think, congressional district east of the Mississippi. It is home to uh, the Adirondack State Park, which is the largest state and or national park in the lower 48 states. Uh, gorgeous mountains, uh, beautiful places to, to hike, uh, to recreate. Uh, there's tremendous winter sports that we have up here. Uh, it's, it's, so it's a great place. It's also very agricultural, like we've got tremendous farmlands, a great huge dairy industry that is um, incredibly important to the economic prospects and development here. And so uh, it's, it's a large swath, swath of, the, of the North Country of New York. What's the largest city in that region? That's in a good your, In your district, I should say. Uh, there, there are three major uh, population centers, and that's Glens Falls, Watertown, and Plattsburgh that sort of make the, 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 the largest parts there. We'll see, however, uh, as this is happening probably across the country, uh, and we're a few months away from finding out how this will be impacted uh, New York State is going through redistricting, and we will have new district lines for this congressional map and figure out uh, what is included within this district at that point. Will that affect the race next year? Yes, it certainly will. Yes. So this is a key question that we're all uh, wow. waiting with bated breath to understand what the district map looks like in order to figure out the impact of it all. Is it possible you won't be then in the 21st district that you'll have to run in a different district? Unclear in terms of number, I will say that the incumbent and I, at least Stefanik, she and I live about 10 minutes away from one another. So wherever she ends up, <laughs> uh, my, my prospects will probably be tied to hers as well in terms of which district we're in. Interest. That is really interesting, actually. And when you think about it, so what, not to get too wonkish about that, is it one of those things where the district might be larger or is it going to be just in a different spot? I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people are unclear about what gerrymandering is in this, this context. Well, there's a bipartisan uh, commission that's looking at and, and, and tasked with creating uh, congressional maps. The, the census that was taken, uh, there was population loss in New York state. So they're losing a congressional seat. So they have to draw maps anyway. And uh, there will be a determination made about how you capture uh, in that calculation, this is beyond sort of my scope of expertise, uh, a certain number of uh, residents within a congressional district as they try to find some sort of magic number around that. It's hard to imagine it getting bigger because it's pretty big as it is. And there's, and there's not much place to go, you know, north because uh, that's Canada or east because that's Vermont. Uh, so they're going to have to you know, figure out where to capture additional population going a little bit further south or come up with some, as we've seen elsewhere, you know, kooky. Uh, you know, drawings of the maps in order to, you know, capture where people are, uh, even if it's not where county lines exist. That's some of the, the challenges, I think, uh, with how maps have been drawn in the past. Fascinating. So in that kind of a really amorphous type of district that you're describing, tell us what the day-to-day of what a congressional campaign is like. Obviously, it's different in different parts of the country, but I'm sure there are certain similarities as well that all candidates go through. Can you just, and I realize that not every day is the same, but can you give us the components of what some of the days are like? 
Sure. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've commented on this to some friends, uh, particularly those that I've served with at the CIA, to describe it as kind of like a deployment. Uh, there are long days, seven days a week. Uh, but in that regard, I've got pretty good experience in terms of uh, the level of energy and focus for the task ahead. You know, I'm up around 4, 4.30. That might be a little early for some of your audience, uh, but that's generally when I'm, uh, I've got my coffee going. It's when I do my right, some reading, my best writing of the day. Um, and check in with my campaign manager. And right now at this stage of the race, I just launched in early September. And what we're focused on is a lot of listening. There, we just did a listening tour. We traveled to all 12 counties that make up this massive district. We hit every single county uh, and meeting with voters all across the board, whether it's coffee shops or a brewery, diners, to hear what their concerns are. What's the state of the district, the state of the country to make myself available to them? Because I really believe in one, I'm, I'm applying for a job to be their representative, not for them to hire me based upon some sort of preconceived you know, values or notions that I have about where we should be going, but to actually represent where they think we should be going and to synthesize that across the district to come up with what is going to be a policy platform. Um, we've done a tremendous amount of outreach to labor organizations, folks across not just the Democratic Party, but uh, across, you know, independents and Republicans as well, who I've been speaking with in this race. Uh, we've been engaging with business leaders uh, as you have alluded to, you know, I'm not just a, a CIA guy. I did go to business school. I've worked in the private sector. And so one of the things that I've, I've commented on to some of my business school classmates is that this entire experience is kind of like launching a startup. <laughs> I'm the CEO and the product at the same time. <laughs> and so a key point of where we're at right now, too, is building out a team of professionals to support our efforts to engage with voters uh, through you know field operations and a strong program uh, to get out the vote, to get folks registered to vote, to get them interested in supporting this campaign, to volunteer. There is a significant portion of fundraising in support of those efforts to build out our ground game. Uh, and part of that journey, as I, <laughs> to use the metaphor about a startup, it's bringing investors on board, right? To scale our work from a fundraising perspective. Uh, so maybe if I can use the opportunity to put in a plug, please visit CastelliForCongress.com to learn more about how you can support the campaign and invest in this race uh, with a donation. Uh, no question. You can do that. And I'll mention that at the end of the uh, the broadcast. But what are people telling you? You're doing the listening tour. Obviously, certain themes must be resonating. What What are people telling you and what might be something that's surprising that you would not have expected they're telling you? Mm. So I think it's probably not as surprising to hear at this stage right now um, the challenges that folks are having with respect to the costs of nearly everything, particularly middle class and working families. Uh, that's going to be one of my top priorities based upon what I've heard, uh, whether it's some sort of combination of housing, affordable and quality housing is a challenge, the, the costs around child care, costs around health care, groceries, transportation. And one of the things that I, I sort of think about, though, in this context is that those issues, particularly for middle class and working families, they've existed long before the pandemic hit, their ability to hoard, uh, afford those basic needs. And that's a byproduct of, you know, the cost of living has gone up for decades, uh, but wages necessarily have not. And that's a problem. And here I'm going to go with my country before party. Both parties are somewhat responsible for that. Uh, they've prioritized the ultra-wealthy and corporations above our working families. And so that there's a tremendous opportunity, I think, here with a, a pivot and a prioritization 
of middle class and working families to really focus on reducing the costs that they're um, you know, facing right now across the board to making things more affordable for them and unleashing their potential to really address some of the economic insecurity that we, we have here. Uh, so those are some of the, the key things that I, I've heard. Um, infrastructure is a big piece, you know, roads and bridges, your hard infrastructure, broadband. This is a rural district. Uh, we have a, a great need for additional broadband, high-speed internet, not just in people's homes for uh, accessing the internet for a tremendous number of things, whether it's educational resources, as you know, kids are doing things that are remote. We want to support our healthcare system, which in a rural district like this may rely increasingly so on things like telemedicine. But also there's a component of this, which is more about self-service as well. If you drive throughout the district, there's, there's a challenge uh, at times with you know dead zones. And so we're going to need to improve upon all of that in order to give us the, the baseline. And I'm talking about baseline. Now, these are basic needs that we have to be considered to be competitive in the 21st century. And then I think it's going to require additional investment uh, to propel us forward. Hmm. Well, there are obviously a lot of um, folks out there who have been critical of President Biden at the moment. His approval ratings are not where they were a few months ago. Where do you stand on President Biden at this at this time? I, I voted for the president. Uh, I, I support the president. Uh, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done collectively about reducing uh, some of the pain and costs that folks have. Um, I think the president is doing a good job in terms of our economic recovery. Some of the economic numbers, when you dive into them, are very, very positive. But that's little relief for folks in my district who are paying a little bit more at the pump, who are facing increased costs around uh, healthcare. I, I know that we're working hard to pass the Build Back Better plan, which I know offers a lot of relief for families. And I think the, the sooner we're able to do that uh, and get that relief uh, in, in folks' households, we will be in a stronger position. Um, but I'm going to call balls and strikes uh, when it comes to uh, my party and or any party. And I think that that's what our, our constituents expect of us. Um, I think one of the challenges we saw, particularly in this past year, and this is a, an issue that's near and dear to my heart, is the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And uh, I'm, there's certainly some blame for this administration for how that was uh, conducted. Uh, I'll be for the first to admit that uh, for folks that I served with that spent the better part of the last you know, 20 years or so focused on Afghanistan and our counterterrorism efforts there, we expected more from what we had invested uh, in both blood, treasure, time, our mental health, our families, um, you know, the loss of friends. This is something that I think from a, a long-term perspective, we're going to want to ensure we keep an eye on, but it's not just, you know, this administration who was ultimately responsible for the the execution of the withdrawal, but the prior one uh, in terms of, I believe, sowing strategic failure with a terrible deal that they made with the Taliban. But while we debate presidential administrations and their conduct in Afghanistan, I think we often lose uh, sight of Congress and their role in providing oversight of the executive branch, regardless of who is occupying the White House, and to hold them accountable for the conduct of war. Listen, you know, Congress has important oversight constitutionally, re constitutional responsibilities when it comes to uh, providing oversight for our military, the funding, the authorization of war. And I think that they've been asleep at the wheel. We have a specific example of someone here in this district, uh, our representative, Elise Stefanik, who sits on the House Armed Services Committee, who has failed to participate in meetings on Afghanistan, 
uh, particularly in the run-up to uh, the withdrawal. And she failed to provide the, the adequate support that was required of our service members, folks like those serving out at Fort Drum, uh, who participated in you know, the 10th Mountain Division, who have uh, deployed more than any division uh, since 9-11. Uh, she failed to participate and advocate on their behalf for our national security interests uh, because she was playing partisan politics with the prior administration. She's certainly doing that now. Uh, there was one example in, on the 12th of May in which she failed to participate in oversight meeting on uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal that the Pentagon uh, was the first opportunity to ask hard questions of what the Pentagon were plan was planning in that regard. And she failed to participate in the meeting. But that day, she had plenty of time to go vote Liz Cheney out of office in mm -hmm. pursuit of her own sort of personal ambition and path to power. And so that's the kind of stuff when we talk about a, a need to restore country before party, where our national security relies on that. Hmm. Yeah, no question about it. Um, you touched upon Afghanistan. Uh, let's just be blunt. Uh, how would you rate, like, on a if you were to grade the president's handling of Af leaving Afghanistan? How did he do? Do I have a scale here? Yeah, like say A through F. A through F. I think it's probably a C. Um, started off in an F, but was able to to work their way up towards a C uh, by the, the at least in the in the final few days in the in the actual execution of, of withdrawing uh, Americans from there. But I, I give a, a great degree of sympathy to the administration for a terrible situation that they were handed by the prior administration, um, where there was no plan where we didn't have an adequate transition because there was an attempted coup by the prior administration and there was no peaceful transfer of power. We didn't have months of transition planning between uh, the Trump and Biden administrations to talk about, here's the plan for Afghanistan. They didn't have one. And so when you're taking office in uh, you know, mid to late January and faced with a one May deadline, uh, there's not a tremendous amount of planning that you can do as you're starting to assemble your national security team, getting staffing at places like the State Department and, and the Pentagon. That being said, you know, the buck always stops uh, with the White House. And so um, I, I, they've salvaged some of it. There's more work to be done, particularly with some of our Afghan allies. And I know that they've uh, taken on some of my, my you know, friends and colleagues who work um, you know, in the veterans groups who are working diligently, whether you call them the digital Dunkirk, who are attempting to get some of our Afghan allies out of Afghanistan, and that the State Department and uh, the Defense Department have brought them on board to better coordinate some of those efforts. But that's stuff that probably should have happened before the withdrawal began. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. Um, what do you think the chances of the Build Back Better legislation making it through the Senate are at this point? Pretty strong. I, I think it depends on what version of the Build Back Better gets through the Senate. Uh, I hope some of the, the key provisions that are in there that really focus on alleviating some of the, the, the stress that's on working families on, uh, remains in there, you know, helping to with the cost of, of childcare, uh, retaining that childcare tax credit, uh, reducing the cost of prescription drugs, I mean, these are issues that the wide swath of American people agree on and we so desperately need. And so there's a tremendous opportunity to actually address the pain points that uh, middle class and working families are, are facing right now. Uh, and it would be, uh, I think, a tremendous disservice to them as we see sort of a, a partisan approach to that. This is a this wide bipartisan agreement around 
the individual provisions that are within the Build Back Better plan, and I and I hope they pass it. Let's go through a few hot button issues quickly. Um, should Congress raise taxes on those over, making over a certain amount, especially to pay for the Build Back Better plan? You know, working in middle class families are and will remain the heart of our economy in this country. And I, I think it's safe to say that for decades, we have seen Republican and Democratic parties fail to put these families first. And so I believe that we need a tax code that centers on them and returns us to a fair and progressive tax system. Um, what we've seen from somebody like Elise Stefanik and others is that they would rather let billionaires and corporations pay less in taxes than working families in our district. So, you know, the trickle down myth uh, that has uh, been pushed over the past number of decades by probably both administrations, that's resulted in the rich getting richer and the income of average Americans remaining flat for decades. Mm. And so I think it's important to uh, preserve and protect uh, low taxes for the working and middle class families. Um, and return to a, a more of a progressive tax system. Interesting. The struggles over abortion between Texas and the Supreme Court, where do you stand on abortion? Uh, very clearly, women should make their own personal health care decisions, not the government. And that's it. There's that's, no... it. that's it. Okay. That's uh, very definitive then. How about on gun control? Should new limits be placed on firearm usage or ownership? I take my oath to the Constitution that we've talked a bit about uh, in this discussion very, very seriously. That includes the Second Amendment. As you know, I'm a former CIA officer. I've served in places like Afghanistan and Iraq uh, and had to carry and have had extensive training on things like the Glock 17 M4 rifle. And so I'm going to always protect the rights of our gun owners, our hunters, our sportsmen and women, lawful gun owners. I do think that we have to recognize that their desire is to keep their families and their communities safe. But there's more work to be done on that latter point uh, in keeping our communities safe from gun violence. And so when we think about that, I turn to our law enforcement and our lawful gun owners. And the area that they agree upon is keeping firearms out of the hands of unlawful gun owners. And so th there's a need for common sense background checks. And again, this is something that a wide swath of the American public agree on. Background checks can help keep firearms out of the hands of those who might harm others, harm themselves, criminals. I'm a counterterrorism guy. I want to keep firearms out of the hands of terrorists. Uh, but this is yet another issue where we've seen in this race, someone like Elise Stefanik, who's put her interests and her party's interests ahead of our country's interests. She listens to the needs of special interests more than she does of our communities and, and our desire to keep them safe. Hmm. And my last thing is a bit more personal. I know that you are Catholic and are practicing, and that's not something you hear a lot from Democratic politicians in today's culture, but how does faith shape your life? It's, it's hard to sort of div divorce my upbringing. Uh, I come from both an Italian and Irish parents, um, and I went to an extensive amount of Catholic schooling throughout uh, my youth uh, from, I think, pre-K through uh, graduate school. And so I think the reflection uh, that I have on that and how it's underscored all of my experiences is this desire to serve others. 
Um, that's that's sort of what we're called to do, to put others ahead of ourselves, that, that true sense of altruism. I believe that that's at the heart of patriotism, that folks who serve this country, um, that the heart of, of what it means to be a patriot is putting the greater good ahead of your own self-interest. And so I think that that's tremendously tied to the faith that I grew up with. Hmm. And anything else that I, that you'd like to mention just in, in your congressional journey about just the, the running for office, the, the day-to-day things that you're noticing on the trail, anything that perhaps I haven't touched upon? No, I think you've touched upon um, most of this. I, I will say the thing that I enjoy most is the opportunity to talk with uh, voters um, and to hear their stories. I, my career in, at the CIA, is we, we t- we've talked about it a little bit, it was a little bit in the shadows. I wasn't able to <laughs> sort of tell my own story or to be a public persona in the way that I certainly am now. But the thing that I'm most excited about is not about necessarily telling my story. It's telling the story of others and to, to hear their story, to hear their journey, to hear some of their um, the things that they're excited about, the, the challenges that they're facing, and the tremendous opportunities we have uh, with you know better representation to actually be able to address some of those. Um, and so I'm pretty excited about being able to, to listen to those stories and to share those stories with the public as we move forward. I guess the, I know I said the, that was the last thing before, but now <laughs> last, last thing truly is when will you know, I'm, I'm still fascinated by this redistricting thing. When will you actually know when the district changes? We're anticipating, I think, having that figured out by the end of February, but the date is not set. Um, there is a whole schedule of activity that sort of relies on that to include the petitioning process to get onto the ballot. And then a time frame in June, although a date has not been set that I know about right now in terms of uh, the primary election here in New York is supposed to be in June. So the expectation is that they're going to hustle and and try to get this done. Uh, But the the sequencing of things suggests that we we may not know until uh, as late as the end of February. Okay. Sounds good. Well, Matt Costelli is a candidate for Congress in New York's 21st district near the Canadian border. and all over the place in upstate New York. (laughs) You can go to CastelliForCongress.com or follow him on Twitter at CastelliMatt. Matt Costelli, thank you for joining me in the Nexus. Thank you so much, Art. Great to be with you. And we will be right back. Is there a real America? I've been wondering that lately as I hear that term increasingly pop up. When I was a kid, you'd hear things like American pride and putting your country first. But now people talk about spending some time in the real America, as opposed to what? Phantom British colonies that haven't joined the Republic? Disputed territory along the Canadian border? The Confederate States of America? Oh, but it wouldn't be the Confederacy. Ironically enough, the states that broke away from the Union in the 1860s now would invariably tell you that they are the real America. Mississippi, Georgia, Tennessee, and Kentucky are the down-home spots where you'll find real Americans. What makes them real? Because they all speak English only? They're rural? That term is code for something. Funny thing about Kentucky, with the horrific tornadoes wreaking havoc on the bluegrass state, clearly there is a need for massive amounts of federal aid to be sent to Kentucky. 
This aid would come from taxpayer dollars across the country, presumably from places that are not the real America. You know, like New York and California, relatively wealthy coastal states that contribute a lot more to the federal treasury than they get back. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul pleaded with Congress and the president for ample aid to Kentucky after these storms, but in the past has opposed aid to other places in America, saying those stricken places should be self-reliant. This isn't just confined to Kentucky. After 9-11, a senator from Oklahoma complained about sending emergency aid to New York City after the worst terrorist attack in history, claiming that New York should be self-reliant and that the amount of money New York asked for was more than what Oklahoma City got after the Timothy McVeigh bombing, as if the devastation in both places was remotely the same or even comparable. Like Kentucky, or Oklahoma is a state that is heavily subsidized by states in the Northeast. What's the difference here? Kentucky and Oklahoma and Mississippi and Montana are red states, while the Northeastern states, the states that funnel tax dollars to poorer parts of America, are liberal blue states. Those in the red states often say that blue states are not part of the real America, that somehow the true American experience can't be found in urban centers. Is that true? Well, in technical terms, there's more rural and suburban land out there than urban cities. Brooklyn or Boston isn't emblematic of most of the geographic United States. But are these places not part of the USA somehow? I'd vigorously say no. The Northeast is every bit the real America because there is no real America, just one nation. It's also disingenuous for so many states to bash California a place that shovels tax dollars into the federal treasury as well. California hating has become a sport in red America. And while the Golden State certainly has its problems, they're the model for innovation in the U.S. and much of the world. Our country would be lost without California. Could the same be said about Mississippi? Wait, now I'm sounding like a red stater, and I'll refrain. Let's just keep in mind that Kentucky gets a lot more than it gives. State residents there received an average of $14,000 more from Washington than they paid in taxes. To put this in perspective, Kentucky's 2019 net inflow of federal funds, $63 billion, was roughly 30% of the state's GDP that year. This is okay, though. Kentucky is a poor state without much industry. I love their bourbon, but that can't compare to a New York that is powered by the financial industry. What gets ridiculous is when people like Rand Paul and many, many other red state politicians lecture people in New Jersey that they need to flee the cities and head to the real America. That's patently absurd. If it weren't for people in New Jersey or Connecticut or California, Kentuckians or Montanans wouldn't be able to pay the bills. Let's start adopting a we're all in this together mentality like Americans did in the Great Depression and not try to fundraise over what you've said on Fox News. A little gratitude from these red stater types would go a long way in my book. We're here to pick you up when you fall. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Congratulations to our former production assistant, Lieutenant Ian Heald, for graduating Airborne Ranger School this past week. 
Good job, Ian. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. Merry Christmas to you. We will see you next time and be well.